The Energy Gang Podcast is brought to you by Huawei Technologies. From devices to telecom infrastructure to cloud computing and convergence solutions, Huawei is rethinking every link in the IT chain to deliver a better future faster. Huawei is now offering its Fusion Solar PV solution, a unique approach to integrating, optimizing, and digitizing solar power plants. See how to improve your solar project at Huawei.com. That's H-U-A-W-E-I.com. For the week of December 3rd, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. This week, will the Paris Climate Talks deliver? We'll have an update from an editor on the front lines of the negotiations. Then it's been a big week of shakeups and spin-offs in the utility sector. This morning, David Crane says he's stepping down as CEO of NRG. And on Tuesday, yet another investor-owned utility said it plans to spin off its renewable energy assets into a separate business. We'll give our take on both. Then we'll end by asking, is the U.S. government botching its support of offshore wind? In Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. Also in Washington is Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions. How is your Thanksgiving? I take it you were in the mountains? Yes, of course I was. Uh, I grew up uh, right in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and my family meets down there. A whole bunch of us pile into an old house, and it uh, just being there really feeds my soul. So I fed my tummy and my soul. Same. I come back refreshed. I was nestled in the hills of southern New Hampshire by a wood stove the entire week. The only thing I need is internet these days, right? So as long as I have internet, I'm able to work anywhere. It was so nice to be there. In New York City is Jigger Shaw of Generate Capital. I trust you stayed in New York with the little one? Oh, yeah. No, I had the concrete jungle that dreams are made of here. (laughs) But you sound refreshed. I am very refreshed. I had my parents and my brother and um, uh, and they were holding the baby the whole time, so I slept in till like 11 in the morning. And Well, while the three of us relaxed over the holiday and, and eased into the weekend, journalists all around the country finished their dinners, hopped on a plane to Paris to cover this week's UN climate negotiations. One of them was Lisa Friedman, who is the deputy editor of Climate Wire. She comes to us from Paris. She's our guest this week. We're really pleased to have her on. Lisa, how are you? Hi, Sue. I'm great. Thank you for having me on. What, what's the mood like there? I know many of the side events and protests were quashed because of security concerns after the attacks there. Is the atmosphere pretty different from past climate negotiations? Yeah, I would say the atmosphere is actually just kind of shifting now, but, but I'll, I'll give you a taste. I mean, this, this has been a really different cop, at least so far. You know, usually the, um, the, the mood is, it starts with a lot of posturing. It's a two-week conference, right? And so it starts with a lot of posturing, and often the early days, our country is sort of retrenching into their positions, and there's a lot of concern um, about how things are going to go. And then towards the end, the ministers come, and there's a lot of big speeches and upbeatness. But this time, the opening day, you had 140-something world leaders um, Christiana Figueres, the head of the UNFCCC, called it a world record. Um, that there's never been that many world leaders together on one day for one theme. So I don't believe it move. unless Guinness Book World Book of Records certifies it. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to her about that. Yeah, well, Lisa's a trusted <laughs> journalist, so I, I, I trust her numbers. <laughs> I'm citing Figueres, but I have a feeling that 
she would actually call the Guinness Book of World Records to uh, to have that officially <laughs> cited, <laughs> knowing her. But, um, you know, so it started with all of this excitement and, and really a, a very kind of positive mood, a lot of huge announcements. Now they're getting into the nitty gritty of things, and I'm just starting to hear negotiators come out of, of small meeting rooms saying, it's war. I don't know how we're going to get this done. <laughs> So well, you, you broke the story of the announcement uh, that Gates was planning on making with a bunch of other tech billionaires. Uh, they're going to set aside billions of dollars and work with the U.S. government in a public-private partnership to help leverage more money for R&D. How'd you come across that story? And how was that playing out there in Paris? Because that was quite a big way to start off the talks. I came across the story from a source and you talked about Thanksgiving. That is nailing down that story the chagrin of my husband was pretty much what I did on Thanksgiving and to the chagrin of a lot of the people that I bothered to uh, try and confirm it, which I, I finally did. Um, so 20 countries announced that they would double their budgets for clean energy research and development. Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, and a whole other tech billionaires, along with George Soros and, and others, um, said that they were going to create a fund that would um, work in partnership with these countries. It's being described as the largest clean energy R&D partnership ever. I'm not sure how much it's moving the negotiations, to be honest with you, but it was a really powerful opening day announcement. Once things get into the negotiation stage here, it feels like nothing outside of the bubble really has too much influence, but you never know. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, Lisa, I was at COP15 in Copenhagen, uh, which was dark the whole time. And oh, um, <laughs> although it was very pretty because it was the holiday season. Um, right. But uh, the work that I – there were a lot of corporate events or a lot of side events and there were a lot of corporations. But but they none of them seemed to have the impact or potential influence that this type of announcement and, – and none of the announcements were this big. So it seems like the corporate world is starting to calm a little bit closer to to the country negotiation world does that seem like that to you or is it still just completely divided no you're right i think you're totally right about that um i I think so look on the one hand i've been seeing more um activity and influence by businesses on a whole lot of levels than ever before not just you know businesses have always and industry has always had side events here um, talking about either what they're doing to develop clean energy or, or um, what their industry, what climate change means for their industry. But for the first time here, you're seeing groups like the We Mean Business Coalition that has um, a group of business leaders that is putting forward negotiating text on things like the long-term goal. The long-term goal is, is wording that... Uh, sort of puts into practice, what does it mean to keep below two degrees? So we've never seen business leaders take such a direct interest in the negotiations. I, I think what I meant by not being how sure it influences the, the, the business announcements, influence the rooms, is that you know finance for developing countries is a huge issue here. And there's a lot of countries that have been quick to say, this Gates announcement is fantastic. We're so excited about it. But also, <laughs> um, well, don't don't let that be a substitute for money that rich countries should deliver. Well, I mean, this is why I took such issue with the Gates announcement. I think, you know, it's sort of like, you know, one of those really fantastic announcements that is is perfectly made for this moment. 
except that it's exactly out of tune with what everybody wants, right? What everybody wants right now in India in particular, but other countries is more money for deployment. And the question becomes, how exactly does the Gates announcement and the 20 other government announcements solve that critical issue that was brought up in Copenhagen? I don't know that it does. I mean, I, I think that what it does do is lubricate some of the politics around finance, that it, it makes countries like, you know, there's, a, there's always been a real division, right, of, of what happens in these negotiating rooms and what's happening or needs to happen on the ground in countries. And I get the sense that the agreement was aimed much more at lubricating a Paris deal than what you're talking about, Jigger, which is what really needs to happen in, in countries on the ground. Well, th- let's let's talk about what countries are advocating for. I talked about this very briefly in our live show, and it's something that, in my opinion, is extremely important, and that is the Solar Alliance that India set up with a bunch of other countries. India is putting a little bit of money in and asking for a lot of countries to invest specifically in solar technologies. And Narendra Modi has said over and over again that he thinks that solar is the central renewable energy technology that can help get India off of coal and help alleviate energy poverty. And so you've seen pretty aggressive messaging around the uh, COP21 conference. Is that being talked about a lot there? And, you know, how is that sort of influencing the way people talk about solar and new ways to expand energy access? It's being talked about a ton, but again, it's a, it's a, you know, cops are a funny place, and sometimes the real world, even when it comes right in through the gates, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't fully penetrate the negotiation. Um, I, so I don't think there's the kind of in-depth conversation happening that you're talking about, maybe in the side rooms, maybe in the side events, um, but, but not where I am in the, the sort of thick of the negotiation. But don't, wouldn't you say, Lisa, though, that the underlying reason for why we're optimistic that there's going to be a deal is that the, the, is that the mood around the cost-effectiveness equation has changed, right? That in Copenhagen, yeah. you know, the, the emerging markets were like, you're taxing us and you're, you're choosing, making us choose between development of our poor and clean energy. And today, there are p- countries that believe that there's a no regrets policy here where you can do both. And Modi's solar announcement is the personification of that no regrets policy. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think, you know, within, again, within the context of the n- negotiations, you're also seeing a lot of very strong language from India about climate justice and making sure that the I mean, I'll just call it blame, that the blame for climate change is squarely on the shoulders of industrialized countries. So you really see kind of a dual messaging from from countries. And there's no doubt that, you know, what's really happening is that the reason 180-something countries have been able to put forward, um, I'm going to use horrible UN lingo, have been able to put forward intended nationally determined contributions by NDCs. <laughs> we knew that for- language would come up at some point. I know. I apologize. Um, you know, is is because the the cost of of renewable energy has come down so far, and I think there's a great excitement about that. So, Jigger, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're coming into these negotiations with fundamentally different economics for these technologies. I've been at these climate talks. I was there in like 2011, 2012. Even then, I've got you beat. I've been going since 2008. (laughs) (laughs) 
but 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 even then people were talking about how expensive renewables and alternatives were and now that conversation is starting to pass so the the framework for these discussions has changed however when you get into the details of the negotiations themselves you're right lisa they are they do tend to be removed from the reality on the ground, and it's all about placing the comma in an appropriate place and redefining words and getting into the minutia of these legal documents. So let's talk about uh, some of these painstaking negotiations. There are a couple different tracks here that are capturing attention. One, of course, is the work being done to formalize some kind of binding emission reduction commitments. And basically, if that does come together, it's base, it's countries saying we will agree on a track, a multi-year track to establish those commitments. The other is how rich countries should fund climate mitigation and adaptation in developing countries. And you, you alluded to that. On the first side, what are you watching as negotiators come together and start hashing out what a binding commitment would look like. I know there are lots of options that have been considered, and now they really need to start making the hard decisions. Do This is very early in the process, as you said. Like We're, we're at the very early stages of this two-week negotiation. Is there anything interesting related to that track coming out thus far? What should we be keeping our eyes on? So a ton of things. Let me, let me break down the legally binding, because there's kind of two things that you talked about. And one is whether or not this agreement is going to be legally binding or not. And that's a huge fight. We have a big story on it today. Um, And what's been interesting to me about this is that everybody has been using the phrase legally binding and everybody means something different by it. (laughs) Um, You know, the United States is saying that they want a legally binding agreement, but they mean something very different than what Europe means um, and what vulnerable countries mean. What the U.S. wants is an agreement where the procedures are legally binding. They don't mind being legally bound to report what they're doing, monitor what they're doing, verify what they're doing to to meet their target of cutting emissions 26 to 28% below 2005 levels by 2025. But they don't want to be held to account for actually meeting that pledge. And they're not the only one. I mean, China and India don't want it either. And so the legal fight over this is actually becoming really interesting. Europe is is trying to get the U.S. to agree to words like countries shall implement policies. So the difference between should and shall, you mean? <laughs> the difference between should and shall. It always gets you at these things. Um, and, and even that is a bridge too far, I think, for the United States. They, you know, Some negotiators have told me that agreeing to language that says they shall implement policies to meet the targets is a little too cute, right? That, that, that it is basically saying we're going to meet the targets, um, which would then invite congressional, which would invite Senate advice and consent, um, which is something the Obama administration is trying to avoid. So that's one really interesting issue, how far watered down the U.S. will work to make that language. The other is that you also alluded to this ratchet and review. You know, that all of these targets that countries have put forward, everybody acknowledges that it's not enough to keep below the two-degree limit. Even if you put them all together, it still gets us by various estimates between 2.7 degrees or higher. And so the solution that people have come up with to this is to say that countries every five years or so should review their targets and be forced to boost them. And that's run into a lot of resistance from India, 
um, and other countries, but primarily, you know, and most loudly, India. And frankly, the answer to that comes down to money. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who have said, you know, do you want us to be, do you want, if you want to ensure that India and others will take these targets that they fought internally and domestically very hard to come up with, maybe nobody thinks that anyone else's target is good enough. But just like the fight in the United States was brutal, um, so it was in every other country to come up with, with their targets. If, if we want to see countries boost those targets over the years, those countries want some assurance that there will be money to help them, at the very least, with the incremental cost of moving to clean energy. Um, and that's where the, that's where the fight is, where, where show me the money, that's the fight. But this is the definitional problem, though, right, Lisa? I mean, that ultimately, the problem here is that, you know, today, the data shows very clearly that this year, more money will be invested in emerging markets for renewables than in OECD countries. So the money is already flowing into emerging markets. The question becomes, how much of it can we count? And how much of it can't we count? And how much of it was supported by public sector entities like OPIC or, or the U.S. Export-Import Bank or the World Bank or other stuff, and how much of it was just private sector capital. And, you know, basically, it seems like the definitions are the problem. The capital is actually already flowing. The definitions and also the, I would call it ideology, right? I mean, this is, everything you say is absolutely true. But what they're fighting about here is um, definitions. And, you know, back in 92, we created these categories that rich countries should do these things and, and poorer countries should do these things. And should we change those categories? Should we, is it time to change the rules? That's what a lot of the fights here are, are about. It really brings home to me sitting in some of these um, negotiation sessions, you know, how, how deeply removed they can be, I think, from the real world. You have a lot of experience at these negotiations. You know very well that uh, we could be having a completely different conversation during the last day of the negotiations. These things tend to come together in the last like 24 hours, 12 hours. Sometimes they get pushed into the days after the conference. So, you know, this is still very early days. But I'm just curious uh, what the different definitions of success are at the conference and what you think the chances are of the binding commitments actually coming together like so many people hope. I think the, the definition of success for the United States is wildly different than the definition of success for island countries, for example. Um, you know, the United States wants to see an agreement that is ambitious, but the target's not legally binding. Um, they want to see an agreement that is entirely what they call, I don't want to use the word fair because I don't, I think that all these things wind up being loaded, but they wanted to see developed and developing countries treated equally throughout everything. Um, whether it's finance, whether it's putting money up, they want uh, language indicating that the developing countries can give money um, as well as developed. Other countries like island nations, their priorities are, are you going to keep our countries safe? Uh, are you going to, to you know, um, increase your climate targets? Are you going to protect the, the impacts from climate change that we're already feeling? I, I had a conversation with Ivo de Boer today, and he's the, the former UNFCCC 
uh, climate chief, um, and he relayed to me this conversation that he had with the negotiator from Tuvalu. And he said, you know, next Saturday night, you're going to be confronted with a dilemma, saying yes to something that is inadequate, or if you say no, you run the risk of setting this process back another 10 years. And, and that's, I think, the dilemma that a lot of countries will face. Will this be ambitious enough? And if it is not ambitious enough, what do you do? Do you block it? Do you stand in the way? Um, do you just swallow it and and try to improve it? Um, there's a lot, you know, no one here will even entertain the idea, well, a few people like Eva Debora, but no one here will really entertain the idea of what happens if Paris fails. But he really plainly said, you know, if, if, if this does fail, if countries do block an agreement or, or not accept an agreement, an international climate process isn't going to be able to gear up again for a really, really long time. So many moving pieces here. We'll see how they come together. Lisa Friedman, the deputy editor of Climate Wire, will be there trying to put them together for our reading pleasure. Uh, check out her work at Climate Wire, uh, part of E&E News. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll, hopefully we'll catch back up with you after the Climate Summit and hear what happened. Thank you so much for having me on. It is that moment in the show when we take a quick pause and mention our sponsor, and our sponsor is, of course, Huawei Technologies. Huawei is a leading global information and communications technology provider that operates in 170 countries. Huawei's new product is called Fusion Solar PV, and it combines cutting-edge IT technologies and power electronics to digitize your solar power plant. Optimize investment, reduce maintenance costs, increase power generation, and boost the rate of return with Huawei's Fusion Solar PV solution. Learn more at Huawei.com. That is H-U-A-W-E-I.com. Huawei, building a connected world of endless possibilities. Let's get into a couple big news stories on the utility front. On Tuesday, Germany's second biggest utility, RWE, unveiled plans to split itself in two, or I guess the most uh, commonly used phrase is to spin off. It's spinning off its retail and renewable energy business into a subsidiary. RWE's parent company will run the struggling European wholesale business, and the subsidiary will take on all the distributed stuff. That that subsidiary will actually be quite large. 40,000 of RWE's 60,000 employees will work there. There have been a lot of spinoffs lately. Almost exactly last year, Germany's biggest utility, E.ON, did the same, putting all its fossil fuel assets into a separate company, and that transition is expected to close by the end of this year. In September, if you'll remember, NRG said it would dump all its renewables and customer-centric stuff into a green co, and that company would only have $125 million in runway in 2016 uh, and hopefully be able to raise more money in the capital markets. And that move was designed to pacify investors who think NRG has been undisciplined in its spending on renewables and the clean stuff. And speaking of NRG, CEO David Crane announced this morning that he would be stepping down effective immediately. We are all still kind of digesting this news in real time. Will this dash NRG's dreams of being the Apple or Google of energy delivery? We're going to discuss all this to RWE first. Catherine, I know you've been talking to some folks in Germany there. What's your take on this spinoff? Just to give listeners some context, when E.ON announced that it was making this move last year, RWE said it was not planning on this. And finally, after continued pressure on its stock, it decided to to do this spinoff. What's your take on RWE's final decision, Catherine? Yeah, so when you put this in context, like you said, of E.ON, which is 
trying to get to sort of the next generation. Um, what we lose track of is ENBW, which is the smallest of the utilities, is really the most progressive and has really changed the way they do business as a result of the markets shifting, really, and, and the costs of renewable shifting. But when I reached out to um, someone in Berlin, uh, Jared Reed with Alexa Capital, he said, this is like RWE is just moving the deck chairs around. He said, there's no vision. There's no new business plan. He does not think that this is going to be successful. And he says, it's not like what Eon's doing. He said, at least Eon is trying to change, but that RWE is not fundamentally changing what they're doing. Now, two years ago, in defense of RWE, they came out and said that we're going to develop this prosumer business model. We're going to hone in on retail markets. They recognize how poorly their wholesale business and their trading business was doing. And, uh, you know, we've we've heard a lot of talk and we've seen a lot of investor presentations, but the business has, has continued to struggle. Uh, but, you know, RWE has said that they're going to make this transition and they've continued to build out renewables projects. Yeah, I think the issue is that there's just not a, a lot of evidence that that's happening. You know, they're the second biggest emitter of emitter of carbon in the western world, uh, only second only to Vattenfall. There's even a farmer in Chile who's taking to taking RWE to court in Germany for causing climate change. Jager, what is your take on how a utility like RWE is actually making this transition? They've been discussing it for two years. They said that they were undertaking a major internal strategy. They issued a number of very nice PowerPoint presentations for investors, but they've still struggled. Is this just a product of their legacy assets still underperforming, or is this more of an issue of them not executing well on the distributed stuff? Do you have a sense of that? Well, I think it's tied to the NRG announcement, right? I just think that the cultural challenges that these companies are just, you know, you, you hate to say insurmountable, but they're damn close to insurmountable. It's just, it's so hard, even when you have, you know, the pressures that RWE has from the German government as well as from Eon, or the, you know, leadership of David Crane at NRG, changing fundamentally how the business runs, you know, using Luke Gerstner's book title, I know elephants can dance. I mean, getting an elephant to dance is literally an impossible task. And what we're finding is these companies are really not up for the impossible task. I think it's important to look at the differences between NRG and RWE. The outcome is the same, right? They have to spin off their renewable energy assets. They have to distinguish these two businesses, the conventional power business and the renewable energy business. But RWE is under pressure from renewables and investors who want them to do more on that side. NRG arguably is under pressure from investors who aren't taking the long-term view and weren't satisfied with the types of moves that NRG was making in the renewables and retail space. So I see the reaction to these as quite a different phenomenon. Uh, yeah, not, not really. I mean, so basically when Eon made the decision, Eon was proactively going to the marketplace and saying, we are going to do this at a time when investors said, that's really interesting. We're going to give you a lot of money if you do that. That's awesome. Where RWE is going to the marketplace saying, crap, the approach that we were taking really isn't working. We're being backed into a corner. Would you give us at least a billion dollars? And investors are saying, we don't know if we want to give you any money, but I guess we'll give you a billion dollars under duress. And so 
So the challenge is, is that if you proactively go to the marketplace with a business model change, which is what Eon did, then investors embrace it. The right investors actually invest in it because these are the investors who actually believe in it. In RWE's case and in NRG's case, you have the same issue, which is the existing investors liked the old business model, which is why RWE and NRG didn't, um, you know, wasn't able to like, you know, make this change faster. In RWE's case, all of those investors have changed because of divestment movements and what's happened with NL and Eon and others. And so the investors have been like, hey, now RWE, you're a laggard. In NRG's case, they were never able to get pro-renewable energy investors really on board into their capital stack. So it was all pro-fossil fuel investors that are really investors in the stock. And they just want their cash back. They're saying, look, if the fossil fuel assets aren't worth anything anymore, just sell them all to, to somebody, give us the cash back and shut down the company. So what does David Crane's exit mean for our for NRG? Like, this is a pretty big deal. He's been talking for years about creating the next generation energy company, and they seem to be the best position to do it. They were making some pretty interesting investments in rooftop solar and home energy management, as opposed to a, a similar company like Dynagy, really focusing on the retail markets. And investors just did not like that strategy. And now you have a really visionary CEO who's not able to execute on that vision and investors who don't really want to see it forward. So do you think that they're going to start to unwind almost everything and just let that green co sit out to hang and, and not give them any money beyond this 125 million? Well, the first thing I have to say, though, is that I told you so. I mean, I have, I think, been more than specific about this not going to work for NRG on this podcast. Um, and it's not because of the investors. It's because, you know, the person who's replacing him, um, you know, his core management team never got on board with his strategy, right? And so when you look at NRG's strategy, the question to you is, do you think that out of Sunrun, Vivint, CPF, um, and Kilowatt Financial, Solar City, that NRG has the best residential division? Right. Do you think that out of all of the folks doing commercial and industrial projects that they have the best commercial industrial solar division? I don't, I've never seen Green Tech Media say that they have the best. Um, no, but they've, they've emerged into the top four. And they've in terms in, of volume. In, but yeah. do you actually believe that you think that they're a well-run business? Right. And I don't think people have said that. And then when you look at Green Mountain Power, I think that's where the real gem is. The entire value of their renewable business, in my opinion, is in their Green Mountain Power division, which is profitable. But like, I don't think EV to go. I don't think you would say that their electric charging um, approach is visionary and on track to changing the world. No, I wouldn't say that. So I then guess... you've got a bunch of average businesses and the board is saying, what the hell? You spent a whole bunch of our cash instead of giving it back to us. And it didn't work out. So we gave you a long leash. You decided to hang yourself with it instead of actually doing something with it. And now we're going to let you go. So yeah. what you're saying is not that um, visionaries can't execute properly. What you're saying is that he wasn't all that visionary. He was very visionary. It was just more, it, he didn't stitch it together, right? At the end of the day, you, when you're spending as much money as, as NRG did, you should have bought the most valuable assets. You should have stitched together, brought the best executives in place and actually created a profitable business. It's not like it's impossible to create a profitable business in the clean energy space. They didn't. And so the board is saying, you're burning cash, and we don't want you to burn cash much longer. So they tried to spin off the company, and lo and behold, nobody wanted to buy it. And so 
you know, so now they may end up spinning it off in the end, but now it's someone else's challenge. They've let go of David Crane. When Crane actually announced this Green Co. Uh, a couple months back, he said that they would hold on to some of the assets. They would consider selling some of them. My guess is that they're probably going to look to spin off more of them than he suggested. Yeah, what do you, absolutely. What do you think? Yeah. No, I mean, I've, I've, I certainly, I've, I've, I've been talking to the investment bankers. I mean, they're definitely trying to spin off as much as they can. I mean, I think that NRG is going to look a lot like Dynergy. Do you think that they'll, they'll uh, keep the rooftop business, or will they just spin that off and then focus on utility scale solar, which they really haven't done a lot of? Anyway. The only thing within NRG right now, Nuco, which is profitable, really profitable, is Green Mountain Power. So if I was a, it, you know, if you look at their actions so far. The only thing that they might possibly keep is Green Mountain Power, but I think that's, I don't know that they're going to do that either. I mean, I certainly don't think they're going to keep the rooftop PV business and all these other businesses. It doesn't make any sense, right? If you're, if you're the new CEO of NRG, your marching orders are, you know, go back to owning very large power plants and, you know, and keep giving us a cash dividend. I'm a little hung up on this stitching all these businesses together argument. And Rooftop solar is not that profitable for the biggest players. You know, it's a growth business and you have to sink a lot in and you're not going to make a lot of profits and, you know, it's very low margin business right now in order to grow around the country. Um, you know, EVs are not being adopted by a lot of people and, and the EV infrastructure has to be well ahead of where the EV charging infrastructure has to be well ahead of where EV adoption actually is. So you you have to make these risky moves in these businesses that are very hard to stitch together. In terms of putting these businesses together into a cohesive company that invest would have been more palatable for investors, I don't know that I can see how NRG would have done it any other way given where these businesses are at. Does you that do make the way sense that everyone you? else? No, but you do the way everyone else does it. You just put together a venture capital arm, you put $200 million in it, and you invest in these businesses, right? And you don't actually claim that they're all employees of your company. You don't actually take on the liabilities for the companies for the next you know, 50 years. You basically say, I'm going to invest $20 million in this company and $30 million in that company, and I'm going to have a portfolio of investments. And if they ever really become a profitable business, then we might acquire the whole thing. You know, same thing is true with Southern Company, Southern California Edison, PG&E. All of them have said, we're not going to build our own um, divisions in electric vehicles or in rooftop solar. or that. I mean, you look at Duke. Duke invested in what, SoCor? Um, or no, that's Edison that invested in SoCor. Duke invested in REC. And, you know, they're just an investor. Duke is not saying we're going to buy the entire company and take on the employees and make it our mission to become a rooftop solar company. Um, another company that tends to do this in a quiet way is ABB. So they will look at invest in a sort of a technology or IT company that they think is going to fit well within their portfolio, but they really make sure that it will, and they don't make a big splash out of it before they you know, decide to absorb it. Yeah, I like. I think tying this back to the climate change negotiations in Paris, I just think this notion that Shell Corporation or Exxon Mobil or or NRG for this matter is going to be the the company that's in the vanguard that actually changes the world is crazy, right? Now there will be some exceptions to the rule. There always are. I don't know which ones there'll be. But in general, when you look at the solar and wind space, when you look at the fuel cell space, you look at the battery storage space, you look at the electric vehicle space with Tesla, I mean, 
You're talking about brand new companies with brand new boards and CEOs who have a unified mission to make this market work. They are the disruptors. They are the ones who are creating the billion dollar, trillion dollar industries. And the existing companies are not the companies that you should be looking to, with some exceptions, to actually bring about the changes that we're trying to get done in Paris or any, any place else. But we talk so much on this podcast about these companies needing to make dramatic moves to reinvent their businesses. And when a company does this and gets penalized, now we start saying, well, maybe we should leave it to the startups and those who are more disciplined and have a better handle on, on this particular area of the business. Leave it to just the solar companies or leave it to just the energy efficiency companies. And I'm getting a little bit of a mixed message here. And, you know, I'd love to see companies like NRG or Exxon, for that matter, come out and say, this is our big, bold strategy for investment. But unfortunately, they don't always get rewarded for it. Do I want these companies to be proactive? Yes. But have I been predicting on this damn podcast for the last three years that NRG was, was not achieving its goals? Yes, I have been. Then let's broaden this beyond NRG and just wrap this discussion up. For companies like, say, the big oil majors, who everyone say, says needs to start divesting from fossil fuels and think about a new strategy, are they going to be able to do it, right? Like, what does that mean for a large company that has to turn itself around very slowly, but in a very fast-changing technology environment? Are you saying that they're not going to succeed in doing that? Because if a company like NRG, yeah. which is much, much smaller and nimbler, uh, they couldn't even do it. She look, let me be clear. Shell and Chevron will not be freestanding companies within the next three years. Those companies have oh, made that's such a pretty bold horrible. Three years. In, since 2008, both companies have made billions and billions of dollars in investments, all of which have negative returns on equity. Right. I mean, you know, when you look at Chevron's investments into deep deep water drilling, um, their investments in Russia, their investments on the other side, Shell's investments in the Arctic or fracking, all of them have lost money. That's why their, their chief executives have lost their jobs. The only company in the oil patch who's done a good job in managing their risk so far is, is um, ExxonMobil. If, if, if there was to be a strategy of them actually transitioning, it would be something that used their core competency of hydraulic fracturing, et cetera, like geothermal, for instance, which does need hydrofracking actually to keep the geothermal wells going, et cetera, like a company like Alterac does for, you know, the Vinod Coast as an investor in. And so, so, but would, is Shell or Exxon or anybody ever going to be good at wind and solar? Never, ever, ever. They may be a good investor, a tax equity investor, but that doesn't make them a pioneer in solar and wind. They could be great at geothermal because they need the subspace technology, they need the drilling expertise, they need the engineering expertise. I mean, at the end of the day, these guys are not oil companies. They're drilling companies, they're engineering companies, they're subspace geology companies, right? So unless you use those skills, then you can't transform that workforce. Well, speaking of new areas of engineering where some of these companies could be active in, let's talk about offshore wind. Over the last 15 years, onshore wind has grown 25-fold here in the U.S., but we've seen virtually no development of offshore wind. That changed this summer when equipment finally began arriving in Rhode Island, where a 30-megawatt offshore wind farm is being developed near Block Island. It would be America's first commercial offshore wind farm. Why did it take so long 
to get one 30-megawatt offshore wind project underway. More importantly for wind advocates, how can America ensure this won't be the only project finished over the next decade and a half? We bring this up because Jigger wrote a piece for GTM in early November on this exact subject, and we've yet to talk about it. So, Jigger, you said that DOE's $300 million it has spent thus far wasn't quite doing the job. Why'd you write this piece? What do you, what do you think is lacking in government funding related to offshore wind? Well, I think that, you know, this broader theme that I have is tied into sort of the Bill Gates piece, right? Which is, which is that, you know, we constantly focus on R&D, basic R&D, and then maybe even early commercialization, valley of death, but we just seem to have a blind spot about what it means to be deployment forward, right? In the offshore wind space, for instance, if you look at the investments from DOE, they've invested in brand new ways of reducing the costs of the platform that the offshore wind farm has to sit on and the anchoring mechanisms to do that, all of which is hugely valuable. But what we really need right now is mapping the ocean floor, actually figuring out like what will it cost to you know put in an offshore wind uh, platform here. You've already got incredible leadership from Europe, which is exactly what happened in solar and wind as well. So you have incredible leadership in Europe. The technologies are getting cheaper. Siemens is, you know, offshore wind turbine is doing great. Other people have offshore wind turbine technology as well. So all of that benefit can accrue to the U.S. But the U.S. has to do its own work in terms of, you know, mapping out all of the the work, and then and then the, the government has to provide all that data for free to the developers so that they have a de-risked way of doing that. If each developer has to pay for their own mapping and their own stuff, then it, it, we're not going to get there. It, it's ironic because Senate appropriators decided they would zero out the entire wind budget for the Department of Energy except for offshore wind. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But I reached out to a developer in the U.S. who said that the problem for them has not been um, risk around you know, like wind speeds or or any of those kind of technical issues, but it's been about access to markets and that state policy has been a huge hang up for them. Well, that, I mean, well, that's certainly a problem and that's something that will always be a problem, right? I mean, you have to get offshore wind to qualify for the renewable portfolio standards. In some cases, you actually have to get them carved in because they're more expensive than solar and wind and that kind of stuff, but they play a different role. I mean, offshore wind has 50% capacity factors. And for many of our population centers that are off the the coast, like New York City or Baltimore or, you know, some of these other cities, you can actually literally just tie them directly into an offshore wind farm. It's awesome for resiliency purposes, right? And so the, you know, the state has to include those resiliency benefits when it calculates what it can afford to pay for offshore wind. But I think that we shouldn't let DOE off the hook. I think DOE has not learned their lesson from SunShot. When you look at how successful SunShot is, DOE has yet to replicate the SunShot program and the deployment forward nature of that into combined heat and power, offshore wind, building efficiency, industrial efficiency, every other sector that they're working in, they're using 1990s approaches. Yeah, but what good is this if if we can't even cite the wind farms? Like, isn't this a NIMBY problem? People are afraid to build projects. People see major delays. Like, the offshore wind farms in this country have largely failed, not because they didn't have the right technical data. I mean, that 
probably was something to do with it, but because they faced legal opposition that make projects too expensive to build. No, and you're inter- extrapolating from one project. That's not true across the entire... In the Great Lakes? I mean, there are yeah, certainly I'm hearing, Yeah, I'm hearing there's not a lack of interest in lease areas, that they do exist, and that's, that's not going to shut it down. So I think when you look at how much money D.E. Shaw has invested in offshore wind and others, there's definitely interest to do this, but there has to be strategic government investment on how to de-risk these for project finance providers. Because the project finance providers are saying, how do you make this practically risk-free for me? Because I'm not going into this as a venture capital investor. I'm going into this wanting to make my money back um, you know, and only making a fair sort of 10% return. And, you know, I think they need a lot of DOE support and validation um, to be able to get comfortable to put their money to work. So, Jigger, let me ask you something about the the offshore wind technologies, which is they're, they're enormous. They're, they're, um, you can't just churn them out. They're very difficult to manufacture and install and transport and maintain. And so is, does the government have any role in helping to drive down those costs? I feel like that's a, a tougher question than the solar program was that that seemed to be you know you you had much more of a moore's law than than this this just seems to be much gnarlier but maybe i'm seeing it wrong no you're absolutely right i would i would make this more akin to nuclear plants than i would solar plants i think that when you think about the loan guarantees that nuclear gets some of the insurance buy downs that nuclear gets from the government Um, And some of those other programs, I mean, that's the level of support DOE really needs to be thinking about if it wants the offshore wind business to take off. I think this notion that you're going to get these projects are almost always a minimum of a billion dollars. I mean, the 30 megawatt project is sort of a pilot project out of Rhode Island. Um, But most of these projects are going to be a billion dollars. And you just can't put that kind of money to work without significant government support with loan guarantees and other risk mitigation techniques. If you're at the Department of Energy, read Jigger Shah's piece <laughs> published on November 2nd. We'll link to it on our podcast page. Let's tell our listeners something they do not know. Catherine, when you were uh, hanging around the Thanksgiving table and you impressed your family, uh, what, what story did you bring up? No, actually, one of the members of my family impressed me uh, far oh. more than I could do the other. My younger brother, who he and I are quite close in age, he is a philosopher. He's always been a philosophy professor. But um, in order to really get like full-time work, he decided to also become an energy manager. And he's actually the energy specialist for Emory & Henry College down in southwestern Virginia. And within that role, he started a radio show at the Emory & Henry Ra- College radio channel. And his show is called Good Energy. And you can only um, – they don't have very good archives, so you can only like live stream it. You can do it on the Internet at 7 p.m. on Tuesday nights. But what he does is he plays a bunch of really great music, which I love. I like his music taste, so it's pretty eclectic. Um, And then in between songs, he gives energy-saving tips. And it's just great. He said that he's getting a lot of listeners, uh, students, but then also it's getting picked up by all these people in coal country who are listening to this and learning really um, practical tips on how to reduce their energy use and really think about it. Um, So I was super proud of him for doing that. Fun. Jigger, when you are reading to your son and he can finally speak and understand the words you say and he looks up from the book and and you want to impress him, what are you going to tell him that he doesn't know? Wow, that was an interesting setup. No, but um, no, I can answer it. It's basically, you know, 14% of the entire landmass of L.A. 
is reserved for parking lots. And, right? and that's what you're going to tell him. He's going to look up from his book and, and that's, that's all you're going to say to him. And that he will never have to drive a car in his lifetime. I mean, it's, it's literally that close, right? I mean, within the next 16 years, we're going to get to the point where he will never have to drive a car. And we already have all the technology today to implement that, right? I mean, it's just, I mean, that's the fascinating thing about the negotiations in Paris and, you know, and what's going on here is that like, that's really just how close we are to radically changing, you know, sort of conventional wisdom. Well... That brings me to a future show. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have your cousin on who worked for BMW and worked on developing their automotive solutions for the future, including autonomous vehicles. And we're going to talk about uh, all the different technology sets that automakers are trying to grapple with and also companies in Silicon Valley are experimenting with. So that'll be a fascinating conversation. And we'll have more to tell your son after that one. I'm, uh, I'm going to talk about job retraining. Speaking of coal country, Catherine, we've actually heard less about the war on coal recently. I think a lot of politicians are and companies have admitted that coal is on its way out here in the U.S., and it's sort of time to grip that new reality. That, of course, doesn't mean the political fight is anywhere close to over, but the tone is seeming to change. Now, The next question is what to do about the tens of thousands of miners and people in related industries who are hurting and who will keep losing their jobs. And that's a really sticky challenge. A lot of politicians, including Obama and recently Hillary Clinton, have talked about building new workforce training programs to get these miners and other workers into other fields, maybe even clean energy. And and that's really awesome in theory. Who can't get behind that? But I was reading this article yesterday in the Pacific Standard that outlined some pretty mixed data about job retraining programs since the 70s. In one study, only a third of trainees in government programs found a job in the field they were training in. Over the decades, we've consistently seen mediocre or even bad results in retraining. And and I think these programs are getting better and more focused from what I've read and, and heard from folks. They're there are a lot of unique challenges for coal miners in rural areas, too, where there's just not much around them. So, of course, we should put more focus on retraining. But we also need to be pretty realistic about what these programs have delivered thus far and not pretend that some magic government program is going to solve the deep problems for coal-producing communities. I think we just need to be really real- realistic about that. Thanks for listening, folks. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Huawei Technologies. Learn more about Huawei's Fusion Solar PV offering at Huawei.com. This is episode number 114. Listen to our 113 back episodes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast or on SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, or the podcast app of your choice. Send us your comments, questions, or story ideas to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We're thinking about topics that we want to cover in 2016, and we want to hear from you. Catherine... Have a great end of your week and weekend. Thanks, you too. Jigger, good to talk to you as well. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks. Great to be back on with the energy gang. I felt, yeah, uh, you know, a little, uh, 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 you know, a little sad that I wasn't uh, doing one. I think for the last three weeks. Yeah, we really yeah, missed you. The live show. We missed you at the live show. That one turned out really well. So thanks to TJ Diora for filling in there. With my gang, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We will catch you next week. Thanks for being with us. Music.